0: What is up? Welcome back. This is Pastor Mitch. Unfortunately, we did have a mess up, and this is where technology and all these things kind of elude us, but uh, the USB that I recorded Thursday night's message on uh, corrupted the file, broke down, and I could not recover it. And so this is me on Saturday night during Jamboree coming back up into the office, hopefully re-recording it so it might be a little shorter than when it is in person, but I am so excited because finally... We've been going through the Sunday School, Sunday school Story series, um, and we're finally into the New Testament. I know we've been hunkering down in the Old Testament, with like Daniel and the Lion's Den, uh, David and Goliath, Jonah and the Whale, or the big fish, as we read in the Hebrew. Um, even the fiery furnace and all these different stories. And, and throughout of it, my heartbeat has always been to, uh, to show you all the foreshadowing that's been happening, pointing out all the, the- theophanies and Christophanies that take place. Um, but now we finally get to look back. Like, this is the part that is, is so cool um, that I actually read in a book that I just finished by a, a Hebrew scholar. His name is uh, Chad Bird, and he wrote a book called The Christ Key. And, and so I think kind of giving some backstory to this is uh, I've been showing you how to almost orient yourselves looking forward, right? We're, we're looking forward and, and depicting that promised Messiah, understanding where, where he's coming in and out, how God keeps entering into creation. Like that's what a Christophany is. That's what that Theophany is. It's almost that pre-incarnate Christ God, God popping into creation to move forth his plan that's ultimately going to be redemption and then being with us fully one day. We saw that in the pillar of cloud and fire with uh, Moses and the Red Sea. We saw it even with like the Melchizedek, uh, uh, high priest Melchizedek. We saw it with um, even just the foreshadowing of Jonah and the whale and how the Messiah would be resurrected, Jesus says that he is that Jonah is that sign for that generation. He says that in the New Testament. But we just we think to those things and we think to even David, right? Like you're not David. Like Christ is David. You are the Israelites scared, looking for that Redeemer to come and, and David is that foreshadow, even in his kingship, right? We understand that all of the messianic prophecies and, and redeemer prophecies are based around that line of David, that rule of David. It's gonna be that king who sits on the throne and so there's always a lot of things about orienting right i know i made the joke on thursday night kind of talking about how you see those jeep wranglers with the uh tire cover on the back that's like not all who wander are lost like no you are you just don't want to admit it and you want to make it sound cool like you lost but orientation is such a big grasp right and so this is this is going back to chad bird this is what he says in this book talking about how even the Israelite people in their culture oriented themselves and the wording with it and just the depth behind it. But this is the quote. It says, In culture, to orient oneself is to face east, towards the rising of the sun. For the Israelites, it was much the same. The Hebrew word for east was quadem, also meant forward. So east also meant forward for them. Thus, to orient yourself Hebrew style, you face quadem, forward or eastward. But here's where things get highly instructive. Qudem not only means east and in front, but also it has that sense of it means past or already seen, or olden days. And this makes perfect sense when we reflect on it a bit. The past is what we have already experienced, already seen, right? So the past is not behind us, but it is in front of us. And And that hit me so hard because the reality is, is God chose to write through this culture. He chose to, to make his words be wrote down by these Israelites, by this Hebrew culture. And so he instilled this thought, right? This culture wasn't just randomly there. This thought just wasn't randomly there. He put it into place. And, and I love what Chad says in his book kind of uh, later on in this section talking about the orientation of how the Hebrews kind of oriented themselves with this. But it was almost like he, he, he titled the chapter of the book Walking Backwards to Bethlehem. Right? And it's this reality of as we read scripture, we actually look back from the garden and start walking and taking those experiences, and we enter into Bethlehem. And what do we know is in Bethlehem? Well, that's what's going to be this story tonight, which is the Nativity, right? The birth of our Savior. And that's now where we hunker down with this Sunday school story of the Nativity, the birth of Christ. You know, so, so we now can look at everything we've covered in the Old Testament, again, from all those other stories that we um, experienced and walked through, and we now get to watch them come into culmination with this birth narrative. I want to read two quotes to you. The first, first one is from G.K. Chesterton from the book Everlasting Man. He says this, he says, The place that shepherds found was not an academy or an abstract republic. It was not a place of myth allegorized or dissected or explained, or explained away. It was a place of dreams come true. It's this reality that we can't allegorize, we can't use it as a fun little story to make it our own, like Jesus wasn't this ambiguous thought. Like he, Christ is God in flesh, entering in fully in finality into humanity to bring ultimate redemption, what was only depicted for us in the Old Testament. And there's this other quote from Eugene Peterson, who I have to specify, because I did on Thursday night, is, and I have to say this again, he never meant for the message to be a translation, people just went crazy and made it one. He meant it to be a paraphrase for his kids. He's an amazing, also, Hebrew scholar, and and just a wicked good theologian and pastor, such a great heart. But this is the quote that he says, he says, the splendor of creation and the agonies of redemption combined in this event. This center where God and Christ invade existence with redeeming life and decisively defeats evil. I think that's how he depicts the birth of Christ for us. And so I want to give you, as we've, you know, I, I, we always kind of tied the Old Testament story to a New Testament reality of Christ. Now we get to take this reality of Christ and tie it back to even just three prophecies of just the birth narrative alone the first one is micah 5 2 which says but you O bethlehem who are too little to be among the clans of judah for you shall come forth from me one who is the ruler in israel whose coming forth is from old from ancient of days so we see the place is going to be bethlehem right then the manor Therefore the Lord himself, this is Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then we finally see the purpose. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel other translations this is CSB. other translations say he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel that's genesis 3:15. all the way in the back right after we fell into sin and sin entered the world god already made a promise about a savior who was going to come and ultimately crush sin and death and so those are just three prophecies alone and so if you're following along i want you to open up to matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 and we're going to kind of break it down verse by verse. But what I want to do first is I actually just want to read Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 all the way through. And then we'll open up and kind of dissect it. So Matthew 1, 18 through 25. It says, And the birth of Jesus came about this way after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. It was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, And not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will conceive in her, uh, in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. so we look at this opening passage of this birth narrative of Christ, right? We look at this, and, and we see first off in verse 18, right? The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So first and foremost, in Hebrew tradition, this isn't... I, you have to even take this opening verse to dismiss some of the weird cultural preaching that takes place where people try to equate... Jesus and Joseph are married to this, like, uh, this baby out of wedlock and they're these despondent teens and they don't know what's going on and yet Jesus was birthed into this mess. No, it's wrong. Actually, in Hebrew tradition, engagement was more of a, they were already legally married, but for a year, they had no consummation of the marriage, almost as a, as a ritual or tradition to establish purity in the marriage. So it was, they were technically already married, legally binded. It was there. They were, there was no out of wedlock sense. They were actually just in the midst of the purity stage. They almost were married to then do the engagement. It wasn't engaged to be married. So you have to flip the script. Remember the culture that we're being given and being written through. And so verse 19 then says, her husband Joseph being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly decided to divorce her secretly. So here's the reality. if uh, in Deuteronomy 22, the legal punishment for an unfaithful wife was to stone them in public until they died. Um, so <laughs> keep that in mind when you hear that phrase, right? So her husband Joseph being a righteous man. See, there's two different versions of righteousness. We have to remember that, right? The the, the human righteousness and then the godly righteousness. And if this was Matthew writing about Joseph in the sense of him being that like pharisaical and Sadduceacal like righteous, right, like that religious, like out in public, like I'm going to do whatever it takes to uphold the law so people think that I'm godly. I mean, he might have struggled, but he probably, he would have followed through on Deuteronomy 22. He would have followed through on the scriptures, right? See, because we have to take a step back even for a moment and remember that, we we so often try to separate Old Testament, and New Testament. We we fail to see the full story that it is. And I pray that through this sermon series of Sunday school stories, we 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 see the continuity of Scripture. But more importantly, for Joseph, like the like when I say I have the Scriptures, I talk about the sixty six books of the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, right? For them, when they said that they had the Holy Scriptures, they're talking about what we call the Old Testament. It was put into place by the New Testament time already. We've ta- covered that in our last summer series. And so for them, like that, it held truth. They didn't look at it and go, oh, that's just Old Testament. We're not in Old Testament times anymore. Like They didn't have that distinction. And so for, for Matthew to write that Joseph being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace his wife publicly, we catch a glimpse of now two things. A, that this is a godly righteousness because he's remembering what God instituted in the garden between man and woman becoming one flesh. Right, That marriage was an oath that was instilled and instituted by God. Yeah, there's, there's tradition and there's custom and there's all these things, but he, he outweighed those based off of the truth and the wisdom and the, and the oath that God had given. And so we see this as why Joseph could honor the law and God at the same time by still doing the divorce, but not wanting to have her be put to death. Let then we jump into verse 20, it says, But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And now all this took place so to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. I love this. I love that he's given this dissertation. It's his theological dissertation. We, don't, we glance over it so often because it's the birth narrative of Jesus. We don't expect there to be much. It's, the, it's just the story about a baby being born. But we have to look, son of David, why? Why did the angel have to throw that in there? He wasn't technically the son of David. If we look at scripture and we see the genealogies, we see he's from the line of David. But what the angel's doing and what, what Matthew, the author, is doing via the Holy Spirit for us as reading the story, we see that he's being reminded of his lineage and also of all the messianic prophecies that were based around the line of David, the throne of David. See, the Messiah was to come based off the kingship of David. So Joseph, son of David, the angel's reminding him, this is is sacred, this is holy, this is true. And then verse 21, then connects this child to the Messianic king who would bring forgiveness of sins and salvation via the new covenant. We see it in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37. We see the dispensing of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus ends up doing. We see the forgiveness of sins, which we were just told he does here, right? We see that he's going to bring in a final and true people, which we see Jesus ultimately does by bringing people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So we see the new covenant being brought as a consummation of all the old things that were put into place. In verse 22 to 23, then point us back to the scriptures we opened with, right? It says, that all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, verse 22 and 23, they point us back to the scripture we opened up with Isaiah seven fourteen. The beauty of this, the beauty of what Matthew is doing is he's saying that there isn't a discontinuity. There isn't, there isn't a separation between old and new. It is, This is all scripture. This is all needed. This is all so true for us. He didn't want Joseph to think there was anything that didn't regard to him and his heritage and his lineage in Christ that wasn't going to be brought back to completion. And it ends off with 24, it says, When Joseph woke up, he did as the angels, uh, as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, in verse 25, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This part's so cool, and if you've been tracking with this series, and if you guys have been paying attention, there's a shift, and it's small, but it's beautiful. Because look back at verse 20, and it says, But after he considered these things, and angel of the lord not the angel of the lord which we know was a theophany a christophany ultimately leading up to this moment with the birth of christ and then we see here in verse 24 he did as the lord's angel had commanded him so there's this possessiveness of the angel from the lord right or the the, that angel so there's again this distinction but why is that so important to us well, it's showing us the reality of what mainly angels' responsibilities and ministry were, and it was to the ministry of Christ. The angels were there to minister to Christ. We see that when Christ gets tempted later on by Satan, right, in the wilderness. We see the angels come and minister to him. But there's no longer the angel of the Lord, right? And it shows that the whole ministry of the angel of the Lord is now displayed in its Final and actual incarnation of Christ. There is now, even in the small detail of translation, of literary, literary writing, to show us that all these pre incarnate entries of God into creation to help move forward his plan has now finally come to fruition in the womb of Mary. Like that—that should blow our minds to think that we've been—we've been seeing, we keep seeing it, right? David's that forerunner, that line of David. We see this angel popping in. We see the pillar of cloud and fire. We see the burning bush. We see Jonah as a sign. We see all these things taking place. And now, finally, in just that one switch of a word, we realize that this baby is Christ, the Savior, has kindly come into creation fully as baby. And that's why I love how it wraps up in 24 and 25. Joseph usurps tradition of marriage for the achievement of protection that the oath and bond of marriage was that God instilled. See, again, it's a small detail, but it gives us this sweet reminder that the words and promises of God are over tradition and customs of man. Always following God and His Word. No matter how comfortable the tradition might be or how how normalized the action might take, we have to... you. Look at Scripture and say, "This is what God is commanding of me." He says, "We are now one flesh; we are now bound together." I cannot, without a good conscience, just let tradition guide what I'm about to do for eternal sake. And so Joseph married her and kept her pure until she had baby Jesus. So that's kind of the birth narrative. But there's this, there's another narrative in the Scriptures that I think is wrapped with the birth that we tend to forget sometimes, Or we almost just again lump it in as the, as kind of just this. Weird story that we kind of picture on like the flannel graph, right? Like, but it's the, it's the reaction narrative to the birth of Jesus. And if you're with me, we're going to flip over to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And see, verse 8 starts this way. It says, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch and night over their flocks. So in the first seven verses of chapter two, and even in the chapter one of Luke, we read about where that region is, and it's actually Bethlehem. And so that's where they are. So in the same regions, the sheeps were staying out in the field and keeping. Why is this so important? Well, Beth- Bethlehem was a hill country with gorgeous grass and gorgeous fields and gorgeous um, means to raise really good sheep. And why again is that important? Well, because it was this region where the temple sheep were prepared for sacrifice, for that atonement sacrifice of sin. And so I love that in verse 8 we get this seemingly just regular verse open up for us the reality that the ultimate lamb has just been born. The ultimate sacrifice for our sin has just entered into the world, these Sheep will never be needed again for the atoning of sin, for now the ultimate lamb is about to be led to slaughter for us. Verse 9, An angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Inside again, into the premise that Jesus is the good news, a.k.a. the gospel, for all people. Not just a specific group or nation, but all people. That's why, again, in Revelation, we see the masses of nations. Every tribe, nation, and tongue is there singing hallelujah, glory to the highest. And the angels were already singing that hymn for us and proclaiming that news for us at the birth of Christ. So verse 11, today, right? These are still the angels speaking to the shepherds. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah of the Lord. This will be the sign for you and you will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. See, verse 11 gives us the insight to the means and mission of this baby. City of David, Bethlehem, prophetic language, right? We read one of those prophecies in the opening. Sets the tone for them to see that this baby should be connected to the prophets because those shepherds, if they were raising the temple sheep, they probably knew what was being proclaimed in the temple, which was the holy scriptures and the prophecies and the promises and hopes of the Messiah to come. See, Savior was his mission. He was to bring great joy, right? He was to be the Savior who was born. Messiah was the foundation from which he could save. He's now linked to the whole new covenant, right? The Messiah was going to bring in the new covenant, the, the pouring out of the Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and the and the healing of people. And I love that it says, Who is the Messiah of the Lord in verse eleven, right? The baby is born to you. Who is the Messiah? The Lord. That capital L for us is the same word, and that capital spelling in, in in the Hebrew culture for us refers to God the Father stating for us that the baby and God are one. See, Christ makes that claim over and over again in the Gospel of John that He and the Father are one. He does the Father's will perfectly. All these different things. And yet all these accolades and the Savior, fully divine, fully man, came into the world via a baby in a manger. Our, our eternal Redeemer... The, the messianic messiah who was to come, who they thought was going to be this military leader, this tyrant bringing the end times and, and ruling in this new creation and setting forth the correct kingdom, came as an infant into a manger. verse 13, suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angel had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened which the Lord has made known to us. I love the hymn that the angels sing also are a marker of how we should respond when God works. In all around us, in ourselves, when God works, it's glory to God. It's never about ourselves, it's never about the religious people around us or the things that take place, but it's because of the one who instills them and enacts them and puts them forth to God alone. Glory be to God. Right? We, We see that sola de gloria. For the glory of God alone, the angels, hark this hymn for us. And what does the glory of God bring to this world? Well, to those he favors, it brings peace. To those who are faithful, right? Noah, whose name was Grace, he sealed Noah and his family up into the ark and kept them alive and brought them through peacefully. We see the reality, and it has nothing to do with us achieving anything. Rather, the Greek thought and the original Hebrew verbiage points it out to be that this reality of God's favor freely being bestowed on his people the same wording is picked up, right, by Noah. Noah found favor in God's eyes. God looked favorably upon Noah. Why? Because he was walking righteously. He was he had submitted, he was fullheartedly putting his faith in the promises that they knew from the garden and afterwards being kicked out. Right? And it says to the people he favors. We see that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, found in the scriptures alone. Why the angels and why Luke now is the author of this gospel, just like Matthew, is so intent on bringing you back to scripture every time. Because it is only in these scriptures that we find the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Salvation and the glory of God is a free gift given to all who surrendered to the reality of Jesus. Again, for those Old Testament people, it was surrendering to God's faithfulness of providing a Redeemer one day, to provide that ultimate Messiah one day. And for us, we now surrender to the reality of that Redeemer and that King and that Messiah being brought forth who is Christ Jesus. This is all solidified by how the shepherds respond in saying God revealed God to them, right? It says, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see what happened, which the the Lord, capital L, just like the baby, has made known to us. And so it finishes off like this in verses 16 through 20. It says, they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. You see, this is the beauty of what happens when Christ enters our lives. We don't leave the same. We can never experience life any, any way of how we used to after we come face to face with the Messiah. See, these shepherds, they went from being shepherds to preachers. God used shepherds, usually very uneducated men, to come bring all this reminder of prophecy and fulfillment they brought the message and confirmation to Mary and Joseph plus those who were all around them right it says they told about child and all who heard were amazed they brought that good news that the angels had brought to them in the field and Mary became the immediate image of the peace that the angel proclaimed to them. See, she had already had this background. And so whenever, see, we like to think as believers that the gospel is this one-time message that we get and we leave back as we keep maturing. No, we have to be like Mary. The gospel should be our ultimate peace. The gospel should be what brings us in any moment, at any stage of our life, at any stage of our walk with Christ, being reminded of what Jesus Christ is came to do by taking the cross and then conquering sin and death and now sitting at the right hand of the Father, that brings us peace in any stage, in any moment, in any incident. See, the simple fact was that in His birth, Jesus consummated the fulfillment of the Old Testament and was reigning in the life change that the true Messiah was foretold to do. That is the birth narrative. That is the nativity. That is the beauty of of who jesus christ is and what he came to do i love that that's our message here at indian rocks i love that that's our whole motto but as our key doctrine for the night and and with every sunday school story that we've covered we've tried to hit a couple doctrines or so this one is the doctrine of the hypostatic union and say okay let me explain it this is again the mitchism right this is the mitch definition This is the reality that in a singular person, right, of Jesus Christ, there are two full natures. Jesus was fully God and fully man, or as R.C. I love the way R.C. Sprouls says this little saying. He says, Jesus is truly God and truly man, meaning there was, and it helps gives us that better picture that there was never a point anywhere where you read the gospels or the narratives of Christ, that Jesus was anything less than both truly. Even in moments of submission, even in moments on the cross, if he was not truly both, he could not truly accomplish what he came to do ultimately. And so we see the divine enter into this world via a womb, being crafted and formed of the flesh and birthed as a baby. See, for Christ to have these two natures in one person is to allow for him to accomplish what only the true Messiah and Savior could. And what was that? Live under the confines of our brokenness and sinfulness, which is humanity. He had to live in a sinful world and yet overcome it all, which was because of his divinity ultimately being able to overcome sin and death. Right, And I said this just now, but there has never been a point that Jesus was only one of these realities. He's enter, He entered the world as both and left the world as both. Why? To be the perfect bridge between God and man to bring the right redemption of our sin penalty, to give eternal life. Some references I give for this doctrine are Colossians 2.9, 1 Timothy 2.5, Hebrews 2.14, John 3.13, and Acts 1.9 through 11. And here's the points I want to leave you guys with. Cling to the word of God, even when it conflicts with culture and tradition. I promise you, you will find peace, stability, and solid ground when you hold to the word over culture and tradition always. And it leads into point two, when we focus on God, He makes the simplest and most normal of places sacred. Because when we enter into the sacred, there is that divine connection. When we realize that when we were born again, we have the Holy Spirit seal our hearts up and we are now in Christ. We are now in the sacred. And it is that good news that brings peace to all whom God favors. And last but not least, point number three, when you experience Jesus, you never leave the same. So be different. Like Pastor Jeff has been going through for the last weeks now in John 15, Jesus talks about this analogy of he is the true vine and we are the branches. And if we are truly his, we will produce fruit. Later on in John 15, Jesus actually continues the analogy of this vine and branch and fruit and says, it's not this, you can choose to be a disciple, you can choose to submit to him as Lord, as long as you have him a savior, you're okay. He says, no, I chose you as a branch. And because I chose you, I also will make you produce fruit. It might look weird, right? We talk about it all the time, sanctification, are the awkward teen years, until we get to be called home one day and be glorified in Christ. But until then... We are going to struggle, we are going to fail, we are going to mess up, we are going to do good, we are going to be weird. That's all sanctification, and that's all the walk of Jesus Christ. Don't let yourself be the same person you were before you met Him. Allow Him to change your heart and change your life. When we submit to Him as Lord, things fall into place, and that peace beyond understanding gets a way better foothold. Amen?